Amen. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. Please be seated. Uh, you can open up your Bibles if you have them to 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 10 and mostly in 1 Corinthians 11. You can turn or tap your way to those chapters in the New Testament. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, please don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen, and we'd love to give you a copy uh, today. We'd love to give you a free copy of the Scriptures in a modern English translation. So, if you were with us last week, it was hard. It was a hard sermon. It was a hard week over a hard topic. We talked about how it's possible to be in the crowd around Jesus, but not know Jesus. We talked about how it is possible, lots of biblical precedent for people who are sure that they're sure that they know the Lord. And yet, and this is Jesus' teaching, in Jesus' teaching, he makes the distinction that those who think they know the Lord will one day stand before him and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. And here at Oak Church, we are uh, trying to be loving. I'd love to say we're loving. Yeah, we're getting there. We're working on it. You know, we got hard hearts and crusty kind of people, but... We're slowly learning to love. You are slowly becoming more lovable. It's all working. And that, that slow increase in love, it makes this stuff hard. Because if you love somebody, you want to blur distinctions. You want to reach across distinctions to that person. You don't want to, you don't want to create an otherness. You want to create a sameness. The problem is if that otherness is destructive. The problem is if what somebody's doing or if that separation, if in love you, you try to hide some of those distinctions, well, you're actually not being very loving. You know, if you're raising a kid and they're just getting bigger and bigger and bigger, there may be a point where you have to talk to them about fitness. Let's be real. Uh, if you're married to a man and he's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, you may have to at some point, I've made it a kid's thing, but it's really a me thing. Rachel has to say to me at some point, oh, buddy, you know, and she can love me with harsh words. I hope that it came across that way. It's certainly the attempt, our attempt, what I believe Christ's attempt in the Sermon on the Mount. It wasn't to create a separation. It wasn't to kind of cast down the sinners. His attempt was to make a clear distinction so that people who were in danger know they are in danger, even if they don't want to hear it. And we talk about it specifically with the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is a dividing line. It's supposed to be. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ. And the point of these chapters of, of 1 Corinthians, as we'll talk about today, are not really to go after people who aren't Christians. It's not less than that. That's in it. That's why we're talking about it from this text. But it's a little bit more than that. But it's not less than that. It doesn't, it doesn't say here that it's okay to take the Lord's Supper if you're not His. It's not okay. And we live in a world where there are a lot of people who have a lot of different ideas of what it is to be a Christian. I understand that. 
And it may seem like humility to say, well, we don't know, you know, it's just up to you. Well, that's not really true. The scriptures say what they say. We are doing everything we can at Hope Church to submit ourselves to the scriptures and what they say. So if the scriptures give a definition of Christianity, we have to hold to that definition. That definition starts with an understanding of Christianity, a thing that you must know in order to either believe it or not believe it. There's a content piece. Do you know that Jesus is God? Do you know that you're a sinner before a holy God? Do you know that Jesus is the only way of salvation that only comes by faith? Do you understand that mentally? If you understand it, doesn't mean you believe it, but if you understand it, then you can move into that second piece of saying, is this what I believe? Have I appropriated that forgiveness myself? Have I gone to Jesus and said, forgive me? Have I given myself to him? Have I married him? Metaphorical language, but I don't think it's too strong. If then you have, if you have then in the way that we understand these things, you are. You're welcome to take the Lord's Supper with us. But if not, and this is one of our concerns, if not, it's really not loving for us to just blur those distinctions. It's not loving for us never to say anything about it. Does that make sense? So, harsh, it's what we talked about last week, and we're going to kind of continue this week by digging in further, not just on what you believe, even though that's the the, the core of, of last week and kind of bleeding into this week. It's not so much what is your tradition, it's not so much, you know, were you raised Catholic or raised LDS or whatever. Uh, we can talk about all that. The question is, What do you believe? And does what you believe accord with what we're teaching? If so, you are. You're welcome to take the Lord's Supper with us. But if not, we need to continue to consider, to continue to talk, continue to talk with us. I think you'll find us to be uh, excited to have that conversation. However, 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, he's actually going after a different group here. It says in 11, 17, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, but in the following instructions, I don't commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church that he helped to start and a church that has gone really wonky, especially in this understanding of the Lord's Supper. I don't even want to say especially. they got a lot of problems. But this is one of the problems, and it has to do with the Lord's Supper. But look at the audience that he's writing to here. He's writing to the brothers. He's writing to people who say that they're part of the church. You go down to verse 20, it says, When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one of you goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Then jump down to verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I give direct, I will give directions when I come. So, in this passage, Paul is actually taking on the way in which this church was celebrating the Lord's Supper. Instead of having a little cracker and a little bit of juice, they were actually going to town with a full meal. And in this full meal, some of them were really getting after it. And some of them who came to the place probably without a lot, 
didn't get a lot. They even went home hungry. And the sin of this is multiple. There's lots of different layers to it. There's ways in which it broke the picture of the gospel that it is supposed to be telling. Where in the church we come and we come equal. The wealthy come and the poor come. But when you come in this room, you are equal before God because you are equally a sinner and you're equally loved. When you come in here to take of what we give, you're receiving it equally because equally we are sinners and yet equally we are loved. So then, the way in which they were taking the Lord's Supper was humiliating some and was leading others towards drunkenness. In all of these things, it wasn't leading anybody to understand the gospel more clearly. It wasn't giving anyone the ability to see that much more clearly what they were to be reminded of. And in that way, verses 27 and 28, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So then, let a person examine himself. So eat of the bread and drink of the cup. That little command right there, with everything else going on, that little command, examine himself or herself, let that person examine their heart. That's our command for today. Yes, if you are not a Christian or a Christian the way that we define it, you can argue with us or talk to us. I hope that we'll get a conversation out of it. But I think you understand and you respect what we're asking you to do. Here's the other thing, though. A lot of you really do know the Lord. And yet, you come to the Lord's table without taking that proper moment to examine yourself. Maybe you do. And yet, you could do it a little better. You could do it with a little bit more scripture helping to inform what it is that you're doing. And that's what I want us to do today. I, won't, I do not want us to be like this church in Corinth. I do want us to be what God has for us in this Lord's Supper. Yesterday, my wife and I uh, had sort of like a long-term goal we hit. Uh, we climbed Olympus. Now, I don't know if you've done Mount Olympus before. It's a hike, sort of. It's, it's also really just torture. Uh, it's not great. It's beautiful, but it's just straight up and then straight down. And when you do that, unless you're super fit, and every time we've gone hiking in Utah, somebody's come running past us and then running past us the other way. You know, it doesn't matter how fit I think I am or how well I'm doing on the hike, whatever pace we're setting, somebody still will run past us. Generally, an old lady will run past <laughs> us and then run back down. So you know, whatever fitness you're attaining, you're not there. They are. You're not. But we took this hike, and the reason that I wanted us to do it was, you know, Rachel, we've been here several years, but... Um, babies and nursing and all kinds of stuff. We just haven't been able to get out and do like a big all-day hike until yesterday, and we did it. And it was so great. But as we were kind of getting ready to plan and, and do it, I was remembering that sort of scramble. So I don't know if you've done uh, that hike, but you make a pretty normal hike up to what's called the saddle. It's kind of this place in between the two peaks of Mount Olympus. And to go from the saddle up to the actual peak point you have to scramble. Um, I mean, it's not like free solo or anything. It's not hard, hard, hard. But if you don't know what you're doing, it's a little dangerous. You do have to get on hands and, and feet and try to like work your way carefully, three points of contact, and kind of make your way up and then make your way over. And if you're by yourself and you're a guy, or if you're with a couple of other guys, you don't really think about the danger too much. I've done that hike in the past. I've done it with other guys. And you don't really think about the danger too much. 
I got a picture of Thomas. We summited one of these mountains, and he's jumping. Woo-hoo! On the summit of a mountain, like he could fall one way or the other or the other or the other and just die. And we were like, yeah, great picture, bro. This is so cool. When you take your wife up, though, all of a sudden you see all the dangers. Now, she's very competent, very competent physically. She knows exactly what she's doing. She's great. She's not in more danger than I am. But just the moment of seeing it through another person's eyes, you immediately see all the danger. And I'd had in my head this sort of idea of how fun it'll be to take our daughters to do these kinds of hikes. But the kind of anxiety I had about just taking Rachel up there totally means I'm never taking our daughters up there. (laughs) If they do it, they need to do it and then tell me later. They can't tell me that it's going to happen. Because these dangers, you don't really see them very much when you see it in your own self because you have this concept that like what? You're invincible? That you can do anything? That there are no consequences for you? When you bring another person in, though, all of a sudden, a little bit of objectivity comes in, and you go, wait a minute. You're kind of taking your own life, your own safety in your hands a little bit here. There's a danger you didn't see, but it's there. When you read through this passage, you kind of hope that the people who are reading it originally, these Corinthians were reading it and going, uh-oh. I know what you were saying, Paul, about division in the church. I know what you were saying about that guy that was sleeping with his stepmother. I know what you were saying about lawsuits in the church. Look it up. Those are the other topics in 1 Corinthians. I know that that was bad. But you're going to say we're not doing the Lord's Supper well? Also, how does that even rank to be discussed among the other things that were coming up? Well, there was a danger there that they didn't see. Paul says that it could be killing them. That's why some of them are getting sick and falling asleep. Once you see that and see it well, then you start to see that the rest of Scripture backs up Paul. Over and over and over again, the church thinks that because, I don't know, because of our pride, because of just a total lack of objectivity when it comes to ourselves, we kind of think that we can get away with stuff. That we kind of think that it's okay that, that we trespass against a holy God. But in this case, you see that that's wrong. This, this supper that we come to take is touching something holy because God's holy and the gospel's holy. When you go against it, when you break it, when you do it your way instead of his way, there's consequences. That's what he's saying here. You start rewinding through scripture and you find that there are other places where the same thing happens. There's a time when King David... Jesus is kind of like named after King David. He's supposed to be associated with him just about as closely as he is with any character throughout all of Scripture. King David was a big deal. And there's a point when, under the the massive military victories, the the incredible favor that God showed to King David, they're going to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. If you don't know what any of this means, in the Old Testament, there was this thing that was the presence of God. It was the most holy article in all of scripture this ark of the covenant was the thing that was put not just in the temple and not just in the sort of inner courts but in the holy of holies it was supposed to be the mercy seat it's where the presence of god metaphorically sort of rested sat is where heaven met earth 
And Moses, who God used to kind of put this whole thing together, had given, by God's grace, had given all these rules about the ways in which this holy thing was to be um, not just used, but what even just like moved around. How can sinful people, how can they move around this holy art? Well, okay, you're going to have a specific group of people, not just Jews, but they're going to have to be Levites. And those Levites are going to have to use these specific poles, these poles of acacia wood. They've got gold all around them. And, and those poles are going to go through at a certain time in a certain way under certain cleanliness rites. And then you can move the Ark of the Covenant, but not in any other way. And yet David, King David, with all the celebration of the people of Israel, starts bringing this thing to this, this Ark of the Covenant to where it's supposed to go, into Jerusalem, this big moment of praise. Instead of doing it the way they're supposed to do it, they put it on an ox cart. And the ox stumbles, and the ark moves, and a guy named Uzzah goes to stop it from falling. Ah, that was not very impressive. Whatever. Boom! He died! God killed Uzzah right then and there. Was it because he was so much worse than the rest of Israel? Is it because he stabbed his wife last night or something? No. It's because as a sinful person, he presumed to touch something holy. They didn't know that there was danger there. They should have. They'd been warned about it. And yet they went too far and the consequences hit. That's what's happening in 1 Corinthians. There are these people that are thinking, everything's fine, we're going to do this our own way. And what he's saying is, actually, the way in which you're going about this is tarnishing the holiness of God. So stop it. You rewind even further back and you get to the moment when God calls Moses, the big burning bush moment where God takes this guy that's going to be kind of prophet of all prophets, the guy who gives them the law, the guy that God uses to do all those crazy plagues and then bring the people out, the guy who last week we were talking about this Lord's uh, the uh, Passover moment. God does all that through Moses. Well, the moment when he calls Moses, he does it through this burning bush experience. And if you actually read through Exodus, you don't just read that passage. You actually read through Exodus. You run into this story that is crazy. Because as soon as God calls Moses, Moses then with his wife, they're going to go to Egypt. And in the night, an angel of death comes to kill Moses. Zephora, his wife, then circumcises their sons and says, You are to me a bridegroom of blood. And if you're reading through the Old Testament, you read that story and you're like, huh, and you just kind of keep going, <laughs> then you can sleep at night. But if you actually try to understand it, what? See, Moses had been out in this wilderness He'd been away from his people, he'd had these kids, and he hadn't followed God's law. He was in a danger he didn't know about because the way in which he was living was contrary to the ways in which a holy God commands his people to live. Do you see? Examine yourself before you take the Lord's Supper. Every time we take it, it's going to be the first Sunday of every month. You need to examine yourself carefully. You know, we've gone through this whole series on the Proverbs, and we talked about all these different sins that are out there, anger, lust, slander, sloth, a million more. And maybe as we kind of walk through some of the principles of Scripture about how God's given us these really wonderful things, and there's these twisted versions that we sometimes accept, we're not going to go to sin. Instead, we're going to choose these wonderful things God's given us. 
I hope that the Holy Spirit is kind of underlined in your life a couple of places where maybe you can change. But what do we do about these hidden dangers? What are we supposed to be looking for as we examine ourselves? Well, as you read through Scripture, there's going to be all kinds of stuff that comes up. I just want to highlight a couple. It's all from one passage. In, uh, I think we said it was First Peter. Or is it Second Peter? There was one that I messed up when I hit, handed the verses in, so I apologize. Let's see. I think it's Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. In it, he preaches the gospel. Then he brings up some of the stuff that's supposed to be coming from those who have the gospel. I want to ask you. If this stuff is going on in your life, it says, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, God's divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may partake, become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, that's a lot of words, and Peter's just as bad as Paul making these sentences that go on and on and on. But in this sentence, he is giving us the gospel. He's telling us that we do. We have these sinful desires, and that that sinful desire really is a corruption. It's not how things were supposed to be. It's mold. It's rot. It's corruption. That our souls are that way. That our hearts before God are that way. And God being holy, he doesn't accept that. But the gospel is not just that God's holy and we're sinners. It's that by his divine power, he has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That by his very great and precious promises, he has brought us to himself, allowed us to become partakers of the divine nature. What Jesus did when he came and lived a perfect life was make a way for sinful people to take on his perfection, that, that the blood of Jesus gets put over you in the way that God no longer sees your sin, he now sees Christ's righteousness. And in that blessing, in that incredible gift, he's actually not only forgiving you, he's adopting you into his family. He's bringing you into a relationship. That's the core foundation now of everything that we're going to talk about and believe. When we talk about love at the heart of what we believe, this is why. It's not just about performance. Are you a sinner or are you holy? And God doesn't like sin, so he's going to make you holy. No, the point of all of this is that we might be brought into relationship with a holy God. Love. And having received having become part of, now, because of that gospel, verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness. Godliness with brotherly affection. Brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that was a whole lot of different words, but I think passages like this are given to help us in that process of examining our lives and our hearts. Examining and saying, Lord, where do I fit here? 
He's talking about growing in your faith and your knowledge, reliance upon the very great promises that God's given us. We talk a lot about preaching the gospel to yourself here. That's because the way in which you're going to medicate your soul, the way in which you're going to lead yourself spiritually is by remembering what you believe. All of the world in your past, a lot of your habits are built to not just like lead you into wild, crazy sin. A lot of that stuff is just built to distract you. If the enemy can just get you doing something that's sort of neutral rather than thinking about remembering, loving the promises of God through the gospel then slowly, moment by moment, you become more anxious, more given to anger, more quick to do your things instead of God's things. The more quick you are to reorient your life, to prioritize your life around things that have no eternal significance. So instead, commit yourself to understanding more, to having more knowledge that you can put more faith onto. Man, we are a bookish religion. The Bible is a big, thick book. There's a lot to read there. Then God's kind of men that have followed him, women that have followed him throughout the centuries are bookish. They've been writing a lot of stuff. Maybe you're, you know, not a great reader or whatever. No problem. There's podcasts. There's audio books. There's a million ways to get at it. Are you committed to supplementing, to growing your knowledge of the Lord and what he's taught? Man, he talks about people being slack in the pursuit. That this knowledge is, is going to be built up with self-control. Self-control with steadfastness. Do you have, are you characterized by growing steadfastness and self-control in the pursuit of God? Are you? I read a thing this week where a guy was talking about these old saints, these biographies he'd been reading. It was Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's like a fancy, impressive preacher from London, like early part of last century. And he was talking about these guys, and he was saying these, these men, these women, these incredible saints of old were very careful about what they ate, what they drank, and how much they slept. The reason that they did that was because they wanted to make sure that all of those things served them in their pursuit of Christ. So they had self-control in all those different areas. Made me a little joke at the beginning of the sermon about the way that you eat. I'm not real concerned about your health, really. I am concerned about your soul. I'm not preaching. I never am preaching for my own righteousness. I'm not good at this. But it is what we're called to pursue together. Some level of discipline in the way that we live. So that, so that we can be growing, making every effort, so that we supplement our faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge of self-control, with steadfastness, with godliness, brotherly affection. Then it gets into this, brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. That concept is especially important for us as we think about the Lord's Supper. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching on forgiveness, on anger, and he says... If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. When you're examining yourself, let me ask you to also examine your relationships. How are things going with the people that you know and you love? Is there a lot of resentment? Is there hate? Are there people you've cut off? 
Maybe it goes the other way. Are there people that you put on too high a pedestal? God forgive us. No, we're supposed to be growing in brotherly affection. We are supposed to be a people who really do love well. Are you? Now, there's two ways I expect people to kind of react to what I'm talking about. There are people who are having a rough time. They're not doing really great spiritually, but they don't know it. They're pretty proud of themselves. So you preach this kind of stuff, and you're kind of hoping, like, ooh, I really want this guy to hear it. And afterward, he's like, man, great sermon. And you're like, whoa, yeah, yeah, hey, great. And you're hopeful that maybe they heard what you said. And they're like, I really hope she was listening. <laughs> they're convinced that you're preaching to somebody else. And you're like, nah, you. And maybe, you know, if I know them, I'll say that. But, but the hope is that if you're spiritually proud, God would humble you. And you say, maybe this is about me. There's another group, though, and those are the people that have a very soft conscience. They're very quick to repent. And when you say stuff that you're actually proud, uh, you're so excited to see how the Lord has already done this in their life, how they really are. They're, they're a model, personally, for, for brotherly affection. And you're so thankful for the way that God's working in their life. And you preach this kind of stuff, and they come up to you with tears going, Can you forgive me? Please, can you forgive me for the way that I have? And you're like, no, 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 you're a leader in this way. You're not a sinner. I mean, maybe they are. If you're asking me to choose, even though this person with the really soft conscience probably has more tears, it's also the safer way to live. To start with the assumption that the sin that, that's being addressed in Scripture does have a foothold in your life and you're going to examine yourself as objectively as possible means that more often than not, you are going to find things you need to change in. Places the Holy Spirit wants to change you in. And you hear all this, and you try to examine yourself. And again, some of you are going to examine yourself and go, I am killing it, and come up here and take the Lord's Supper, and man, I hope, I hope you don't. But for the rest of us that are hearing this and are probably getting kind of beat up by it, you still need to see the fullness of who God is in Scripture. It says in Joel 2, after God's talked about this awful plague that he sent on them because of their refusal to obey him in his holiness. He says in Joel 2, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, showing that you understand. Rend your hearts not your garments. That was a way of repentance. They would formally like rip their garment to show that they were being unmade by the thing that's happened. And he's saying, I don't care about this big overt show. I care about your heart. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. How do we know that? Look at the supper. The Lord's Supper is his body and his blood given for you. Not perfect you, and then he found out all of this stuff. Real you, whom he fully knows in all of your sin, and yet fully loves to the point that he gave his son to die for you. As we come now to this time where we're going to take the Lord's Supper, I'm going to invite you to go through this process of examining yourself. I'm going to go ahead and ask the band to come back up. I'm going to lead us through the Lord's Supper today instead of Josh, where we've been doing this sermon sort of mini-series on it last week and this week. We won't talk about it next week. We'll start something new.
But I do want to ask you right now to begin that process of examining your heart. Do you need to take this or not? There's no shame in not taking it. Honestly, that would say to me that you're having a a real moment. That you're actually thinking through this stuff and you're coming to some hard conclusions about it. And if you do come and take the Lord's Supper, wonderful. But I pray that you do it with the full understanding of the meaning of this holy thing that you're coming to touch. Christ's body and blood broken for you. So in that spirit, I want to lead us now into a time of just reflection. Josh is going to play. The band is going to play. He's going to sing for us just a little bit. And when he stops, when you're ready, I invite you to stand and come and take the elements. There's a piece of bread or cracker and a piece, uh, a little cup of juice. Grab them, take them back to your seat, and then when the time's right, we'll, we'll take the pieces together. Let me pray for us. Lord and Heavenly Father, I do ask that you would uh, shape up my words. Lord, that you would help us to see severe things when we need to see severe things. But if I have spoken beyond your word, Lord, I pray that you'd pull it back. I pray that every individual in this room would be guided by your Holy Spirit to confess, but then also to receive, Lord. To confess their sin, but to receive your grace. And that the result, Lord, would be holiness and love. We pray these things in your son's holy name.